Thanks, Chris. Hey, everybody. Um, those of you that don't know me, I'm Billy Gwaltney, one of the elders here at Christ Point, and um, I'm going to bring a word today uh, as we continue our discussion in James. Let's pray. Uh, we'll dive in. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, just the opportunity to to, um, to to gather together to hear your word. I just pray that you um, allow me to say what you want me to say. Let us all hear what you want us to hear. Let it go deep into our hearts and give us the courage to uh, respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have a question I want to ask um, you that I'd like you to seriously give uh, thought to silently. Do you consider yourself rich? Uh, and I'm serious. If a random person walked up to you on the street and said, hey, are you rich? Are you wealthy? Uh, how would you answer them? I think how we answer this question reveals a lot about how we see ourselves, about how we see the world and our place in it, uh, about how we make decisions for our families, about how much we give. Uh, and the Bible has a lot to say about money and wealth and the dangers of trusting in them. And I don't know about you, but speaking personally, I can get a little anxious when this topic comes up. Uh, maybe that's good. Maybe that's not so good. Um, I'll share more about why later. But regarding today's text, it's no differently. It's no different. I approach it anxiously, and I've been wrestling with this for a couple of weeks as I do my best to bring God's word to God's people in an authentic way. And I need help to do this. In my study of today's text, I've been encouraged by the work of Kent Hughes and Doug Moo, and I'm grateful that I can lean into their wisdom. We're continuing our walk through the book of James. The passage today, if you want to look it up, is James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The other James, Pastor James, taught these last couple of weeks as we started this book that the author James, the brother of Jesus James, is writing this letter to the church. This text is for believers. They're Jesus followers, perhaps mostly from Jerusalem. They're scattered all over, and they're being persecuted for their faith. Part of this persecution is social. And part of it takes the form of economic persecution. They're being ostracized and minimized wherever they go. And James is writing to them, one, to encourage them, and two, to warn them. So again, we're in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let's read it together. Starting in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now James, my, my friend James, Pastor James, says that he sees a significant part of the role of a pastor and an elder, a shepherd of the church, is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I believe this is what James, our author, the author of this book, is doing in today's passage. In verse 9, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So he's comforting worn-down believers who he describes as lowly. Kent Hughes describes them like this. Who are the low? The context demands that we understand them as poverty-stricken Jewish Christians who were poor because of their faith. And because they were economically low, they were low in the eyes of the world, and no doubt, in most instances, low in their own eyes. Their poverty produced a lowliness of mind. 
So the author James is talking to poor, beaten-down believers who were poor in large part because of their faith in Jesus. They're not poor because they're lazy. They're not poor because of foolish decisions or they had money and blew it on pleasures. These are broken, hurting sheep, the very definition of the scattered church. And James chooses to encourage them in verse 9 through what's called a paradox. Now, Webster describes a paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. An example of this is the statement, giving is receiving. On the surface, it doesn't make sense, but as we think about it, we know it's really true. And this is a paradox. The Bible has quite a few paradoxes, paradoxical statements. Uh, The weak are strong, uh, the empty are full. The slave is free, the cursed are blessed, and that even death brings life. One of the strongest paradoxes, and one of my favorites, is when Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that, to me, is like the Mac Daddy of paradoxes. Um, All of these statements strike us at first as contradictory, maybe even absurd or silly but they become increasingly true to us as we meditate on them and as we grow in our faith and as we experience them. So here in verse 9 is one of these paradoxes. The lowly brother should have pride in his high position. It's this idea of the rich, poor person. James's reasoning for this is implicit in the words of this verse. He says the man is a brother. He's part of God's family. He's one of God's children. Romans 8, 17 says, Now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So this lowly brother is in fellowship with God and God's people. Also, 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. If the lowly poor brother and sister being addressed by James could just grab onto this and hang on to it, these are amazing truths. And he and she would realize how special they are and how called they are and how kept they are by God. What's interesting is that James instructs the humble brother to take pride in his high position, literally to boast in it, and it's a joyful boasting. So why does this exaltation come to the poor person? I believe it's because poverty has produced in him or her a lowliness lowliness of spirit which keeps him and her open to God. Recorded in Luke uh, chapter 4, verses 18, are Jesus' very first words in public ministry, which were a quotation from Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Later in our study of the book of James, we'll cover James chapter 2, verse 5, which says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. So apparently there can be great benefit to being poor. Now speaking personally, I wish this wasn't true. (laughs) Uh, And maybe I shouldn't say that, but that's how I feel. Uh, When I was in my late 30s, I was poor for a while, at least as the word poor is defined in my first world experience. I didn't know how we were going to buy groceries. I didn't have the money to pay whatever was due next, and I had no idea where it was going to come from. I've been there, my wife has been there, my young children have been there. Uh, I still have some PTSD from being there. 
And I don't want to ever go back there. I really don't. I've seen poor, though, on another level, too. When we visit villages in Honduras, we deliver food to families that, like a family of four, this, this bag of food will feed them from 10 to 14 days. The floor we stand on when we deliver this food in their home or their hut, whatever you want to call it, oftentimes is dirt. And if it's rained recently, that floor is mud. They are poor by any standard. Again, in my experience, I know, and I think my wife Anne-Marie would confirm this, that God is close to the poor who are his saved children. Like, really close. Whether they're in America or they're in Honduras, it doesn't matter. Even if it's due to bad decisions, way more than it's being due to being persecuted for their faith. God is ultra close. In ways that are difficult to explain or understand, he is the keeper of his sheep when they are at their weakest. Again, I still want to never go back there if I can help it. But I know that if I do, I'll be kept by the great shepherd. And note that James did not pity his poor brother and sister or encourage others to feel sorry for them. That's not the point. The point is he saw them as spiritually advantaged. And this is significant. The lowly who are in the midst of hard times are tempted to doubt. Again, I've been there. Maybe you've been there too. Doubt can be consuming when you're broken or when you're broke. Our faith is alive and it has its ups and downs because it's the faith of a human being who is imperfect and in the process of sanctification. But for those who are doubting, James stands deep spiritual truth on its head and shouts that Christians are the rich poor, the low high. And paradoxically, commands that the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. And this truth shouts for attention in our upside-down world. And maybe nobody needs to hear this and maybe be challenged by this than rich Christians, which is who James addresses in the next two verses. Let's read verses 10 and 11. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. And let the rich brother boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here again, James is using a paradox. Typically in our culture, or really any culture, the economically rich person is the proud person. He or she is the one that has the special seat, the special entrance, the special exit, special transportation, essentially the special everything. In America, often the proudest of the proud is the self-made achiever, the one who pulled himself or herself up by the bootstraps and climbed the mountain that's in front of them. Often this is a mountain that many people told them they could never climb, which adds to the pride. But James says the rich should boast all right, but not in his or her stuff, but in his or her humiliation. And that stings. So why does he say this? I think it's because of the dangers of wealth and being rich as the Bible defines it. The Bible, particularly the New Testament, has numerous warnings about money and wealth. Jesus teaches that it is impossible for a man or woman who trusts in riches to get into heaven. Mark 10, 24, Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now he goes on to say that anything is possible with God. But the point is still made. Economic wealth or mobility or freedom, whatever you want to call it, is dangerous for our soul if we're not vigilant. For the unsaved, wealth makes it much more difficult to know and confess and experience the primary requirement for entering the kingdom of God, which is helpless dependence. There are times whenever I I find myself, I, I can be a little bit analytical sometimes, and I say, who is the most to be pitied? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. But Paul says in the New Testament, if this life is all there is, if there is no eternity, then Jesus' followers are the most to be pitied. Okay, Now, we know there's an eternity, so we're not to be pitied. But in light of eternity, who is to be pitied? Obviously the unsaved, right? This brief life they use for whatever for themselves, and they miss eternity. I can't think of a bigger tragedy. But when I think of those people that, that are in that category of unsaved, the rich unbeliever to me is the most pity. Because they don't need God. They don't need anybody. They have figured it out. And the chance, now the spirit changes us all, right? Every salvation story is a mirror. But the rich unsaved person, that to me, is the one who should be pitied from an eternal perspective. Because it's so difficult for the rich person to present themselves as naked, humble beggars before God. Where you and I live today, which is the very definition of a rich culture, we are severely disadvantaged and even underprivileged from a biblical perspective. But what about the wealthy Christian? Which is who I believe James is addressing in this text. There was a small minority in James's um, audience that he was sending this to who had not suffered a loss of their wealth, at least not yet. The question is, did their wealth present a problem for them? Yes, absolutely it did. Just like it does for rich Christians today. Material wealth can lure people to focus our attention on things, on stuff. In Matthew 13, 22, Jesus warned against the deceitfulness of wealth, which strangles spiritual life. The greater one's possessions, the greater the likelihood of delusion. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus also said, you cannot serve both God and money. In Revelation 3, 17, our Lord hits really hard. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's five. I mean, two of those are deal killers. But you throw five in there. That's bad. Following this wisdom, in 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul tells Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, those with even modest wealth, I think, can tend to regard what they have as eternal. And this is why some people just want more and more and more. So many in our Western culture live under the illusion that this life is all there is and that this stuff is essentially going to last forever. But it seems to me that much of the New Testament suggests that riches are a danger to spiritual life, or at least a potential danger. 
Jesus views them as a spiritual liability rather than an asset. In realizing this, James's paradox in verse 10 makes good sense. Let the rich boast or take pride in his low position. John Calvin says it well. He, James, tells them, the rich, to glory in their lowliness, their smallness, to restrain those lofty motives that swell out of prosperity. In other words, the rich Christian is to cultivate the poverty of spirit that he or she experienced when they first came to Christ. He or she is to work at this lowliness and focus on it and make it our boast. The repentance and the surrender and the begging of God to change him or her, this is the position of the rich or wealthy Jesus follower. So I ask you again, are you rich? Or better yet, would a character in the Bible, would Jesus or Paul or James say that you're rich? I'm not Jesus, obviously, or Paul or James, um, but maybe I can help us answer this. Let's go over some statistics. What qualifies someone as wealthy? Respondents to a Charles Schwab 2021 Modern Wealth Survey said a net worth of 1.9 million qualifies a person as wealthy. The average household net worth in the U.S. is less than half of that. And your net, for those of you that don't know, you have your gross assets minus your liabilities and whatever's left over is the net. So one could argue that that's one barometer. If you're worth $2 million or more, you're considered wealthy. But let's dig a little further. According to the Chicago Tribune in an article about a worldwide wealth study completed in 2016, to be among the wealthiest half of the world, an adult needed to own $3,210 in net assets. $3,200. To be in the top 10% worldwide, a person needed 68,800 in net assets, so 69,000. To be in the top 1% of the world, the threshold climbed to 760,000. A 2020 article in Forbes uh, talked about a French study that considered what it means to be rich and came to the conclusion that it meant, first and foremost, having the money to house yourself well. So what does that mean, housing yourself well? What it means, according to this study, is that you have more than 645 square feet of personal living space. Today, if your household income for a family of four is 100,000 or more, you earn more than 97% of the world's population. If it's 50,000, you earn more than 90% of the world's population. Now, I'm not using these statistics to say that everybody listening to me is rich. Uh, I know there are people struggling with medical situations and disabilities and traumas of all sorts. A lot of these can drain resources and even drain someone's ability to earn more resources. There are family issues, job issues, I get that. But I also know that those of us who call Christ Point home today live in one of the nicest and fastest growing suburbs of one of the nicest and fastest growing cities in the most economically advanced country in the history of the world. This opportunity alone, that this brings you and me, might classify us as rich from an eternal perspective regardless of what we do or don't do with the opportunity. You may hear this and become a little defensive or, or kind of go, eh. You might think, hey man, there's no way I'm rich, I can't even get my car fixed. 
okay? I can't send my kids to college without taking out a huge loan. How am I rich? And I think that's a really good question. I think that's fair. And I think our passage today in James helps us answer this. Because see, it's a position of the heart. I think our passage today tells us that if deep down, when I'm by myself in the middle of the night, and I'm laying awake, obsessing about stuff and bills and investment accounts, that's a problem. If my focus is more on what this world has to offer me here and now, or over the next 20 years, which I see as forever, or feels like forever, that's a problem. And the same is true for you. I think James's words here in our passage today have monumental implications for Christians who live in Western affluence. It is wrong to suppose that once we become Christians, we outgrow the initial poverty of spirit we started with. We can't do that. Instead, this poverty of spirit ought to become more and more pronounced. We should become like Paul, who toward the end of his ministry described himself as the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So again, verse 10 of James 1 says, But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. This is wisdom. James, our pastor, talked about wisdom last week. This is wisdom. Biblical wisdom, eternal wisdom. James's brilliant paradox can stand on its own, but then he adds an illustration that really drives it home. He reaches back to the Old Testament for this powerful illustration. Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8 says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So James continues in verses 10 and 11. Like the flower of the grass, he, the rich will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is powerful. It's humbling. This is, when I read this, it's heavy to me. Apparently in certain desert settings, like in Palestine and out west in the U.S. in the desert, hot winds blow in off the desert for a period of several days at a time. And this wind is so hot that at midday, the dirt ground becomes too hot to walk on barefoot. It's such intense heat that it can turn a green lawn brown in just a couple of days. It's like the sun is shooting off a furnace of heat so hot that flowers just kind of hang over and the petals fall off. This is the way it is for the rich who seem to bloom so brightly in this life. But what's interesting to note and what's critical to note is that the same is true for the poor person. But Jesus, or James applies it especially to the rich because that person, the wealthy, self-sufficient person, is more apt to think that their flower is going to last forever. So I'm going to ask the same question one more time. Are you rich? But this time, I'm going to turn it on myself. 
I'm a lamb put in the position of shepherding you, the sheep. This is one of those times where I kind of regret that, but I am. So I'll ask myself, am I rich? Biblically speaking, am I wealthy? I think when, uh, when I start to think about the answer to this, I, I, I've, I've never gotten past Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, where Jesus, where Jesus uh, this happened. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So quick confession time. I've never given to the church or anything eternal to the point that I contributed all I had to live on. I've always had something left over for myself. So when I combine that with all we've covered so far and what I know about um, kind of the history of where we are and where I am, for me personally, I think the answer to am I rich is yes, absolutely. I might not be rich compared to some of you or compared to the billionaires that we follow or hear about on the news, but I know that I'm wealthy from a history of the world standpoint and likely from a biblical standpoint. So I go digging. I'm creative a little bit. I go digging and I find a verse like this in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 to 20. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. For it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth let him and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Yes, <laughs> that's what I needed. Uh, maybe, maybe. Again, it's a position of the heart. Pastor James and my wife Anne Marie and anyone who knows me will tell you that I tend to be driven. I'm focused. I'm passionate about whatever it is I'm doing, and if I'm not passionate about it, I won't do it for long. Right now, what I'm doing is building a business and shepherding at home to the best of my ability as a husband and a father, and also here as an elder at Christ Point. I also love serving on the mission field. And that's about it. It's pretty boring. I don't do much else. I don't tend to do a bunch of different things. I tend to do a few things over and over and over with a focus of becoming maybe the best ever at it, or at least the best I can be at it. And maybe you agree or disagree with this approach. That's not the point. Either way, I'm focused on these things. A driving verse for my focus is John 4.34. I love this. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I want to do what God put me here, and then I'm done. That's all I want to do. I love it. I also love Psalm 32.8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. I've been blessed and molded and shaped and formed to be who I've become and to do what I do. God has allowed it and blessed me more than I ever dreamed. And I'm here today because of him and him only. As scripture confirms, God causes the rain to come and the crop to grow and the harvest to be plentiful. So he's the one giving the abundance, right? 
I mean, you and I didn't choose to be born here and now. I see some really sharp people in this church and in this room. People that God is blessed to do something really well. And we live in a country where you might get paid really well for doing that really well. And that's, that's not a sin. It's not a sin to be successful. But with this comes significant responsibility to live with eternity in mind. And I think most of us that are listening to this sermon today have this responsibility. If I don't stay on my knees begging God to show up every day and to help me keep His ways and His plans first, I'm going to be judged accordingly. In fact, if I don't stay on my knees before God, I'm toast. And the same is true for you. Have you ever heard of the mayfly? The mayfly is an aquatic insect that when it becomes an adult, literally lives for one day and then it dies. One day. That's it. Imagine if the mayfly spent its entire life, one full day, weighing itself down with stuff and issues that it's just going to drop at the end of the day. That would be kind of pitiful. Now think about how foolish it is for me and for you to seek our glory and whatever riches we think we can get here, especially when there's an eternity beyond and none of it's going with us. Life is fleeting for us all. In fact, one of my other favorite verses is Psalm 39.4. Let me know how fleeting I am. I love that verse. It reminds me first that my life is short, it's fleeting. But it also reminds me, and don't miss this, it reminds us that even my ability and your ability to see our life as, as actually a gift from God is a gift from God. Our ability to see our life as short is something He gives us. I cannot even rightly be humble without Him making that happen. The older I get, the more amazing and great news this is to me. It really is. I'm fleeting, and that's good. My only hope is Jesus. It's not my deal, and it's not your deal. We're not the ones this whole life is about, right? It's about Jesus. We exist to point people to Jesus. And the pressure is off for me and for you to try to figure out how to make it all about our stuff. We can glory in our humble state and trust Him to bring us home. Let's pray. Jesus, um, you're our Savior and we thank you for that. Thank you for showing us what true treasure is in your word. I pray that you'll help us You'll save those that are lost, that are hearing me now. Help us to turn to you. Continue to change us at Christ Point into a church and a people that live with eternity in mind. In your name we pray. Amen.